Hey there, and welcome to episode 21 of the Beneath the Sats podcast, produced by Wicked Local North Boston. I'm your host, Rob McKittrick. Joining me today is Sports Illustrated staff writer, Jacob Feldman. Jacob, thanks so much for joining me. Of course, good to talk to you. Now, for those who don't know, Jacob focuses on the intersection of sports, media, and the internet for Sports Illustrated, and he's also the producer of the SundayLongRead.com. Now, Jacob, you're clearly a very successful sports journalist at a young age. I know you graduated <laughs> from Harvard. When did you know you wanted to go into sports journalism? Uh, that's a great question. You know, I, I always liked uh, the, the act of journalism. You know, going back to I, I uh, would print out in our paper in our uh, sunroom a, a neighborhood newsletter that I would deliver to neighbors, about 40 neighbors going back, you know, fifth, sixth grade. So um, writing and, and, and writing about the people around me is always something that I was fascinated in. I actually, you know, I, I thought I wanted to be more of a, a, a news reporter when I, when I went to Harvard um, and, and, and started that way at the school paper, but drifted towards sports just because, you know, it's, it's what I knew. It's what I felt like I had uh, some expertise in, could offer, uh, you know, something a little different. And, 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 and so since then, it's always been kind of trying to find, you know, that balance between stuff that, that matters uh, in, in sports and, and stuff that, that I know about and stuff that interests me and other people. And so it's, been, it's been, a, been a fun ride. And what is it about writing that attracts you to it? Is it being able to do a long-form story, share your ideas in a certain way? What was it about journalism and writing specifically that attracted to you to it at a young age or even now? Yeah, it's, it's, I, you know, I, I, could, I could guess a thousand different things. I think for me, what I love most about this profession, about my job, is the ability to kind of go in every day in the morning and accept that, that I don't know everything, that, right. that, I don't, that I get to be the one to ask questions. I get to be the one to say, I don't understand this. I get to be the one to say, oh, this is interesting. Let me find out you know, why this is happening or, or why this isn't happening or how this happened. Uh, just to get to you know, go in and, and have people pick up the phone when, when I want to ask them a question is, from my understanding, you know, a, a, a pretty rare thing and something I'm very grateful to, to be able to do. And I know you've had a lot of experience. You're interns at a bunch of different places. You did a bunch of different things at Harvard. How did you ultimately wind up at Sports Illustrated? I know you did some stuff for the Globe as well. And did you always want to work there? Uh, yeah, so uh, uh, there's a couple questions there. You know, I, I for, for you know, I grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It's a town of about 200,000 people, and and so we had a, a, a newspaper, the Winston-Salem Journal. So I always thought of myself, you know, it, looking forward as as someone who would be in the newspaper business. So right, so right. Uh, I, I got an internship at the Charlotte Observer. I, first, I freelanced for the Winston-Salem Journal. I wrote about um, mosquito protection techniques. I wrote about a local skateboarder. <laughs> Uh, I, I did it all. And then I, I got an internship at the Charlotte Observer. Uh, from there, I got an internship at the um, Miami Herald. Then, yes, I, I covered high school sports for the Boston Globe and then uh, interned at the Washington Post. So, you know, pretty much every every major metropolitan newspaper outside of New York on, on the East Coast, I, I spent some time at, uh, save at Lance, I guess. But, um, but yes, it, you know, so during that time, I, I really thought newspapers was going to be where I w- would end up. But then, uh, I got connected with, with John Wertheim, who, who's uh, one of the, the best writers at Sports Illustrated, one of the best writers, been doing it a long time. Um, and, and, and through talking with him and meeting with him a few times in New York, you know, I kind of got to really see the, the benefits of, of working at a magazine. You know, obviously now working at a magazine also means working at a website, but um, getting away from the daily pressures of a newspaper and getting, you know, to say, you know, I, I think I want an extra day on this story to really, you know, figure it out or really get to talk to someone who maybe I haven't connected with yet or, or, or get a different voice, or even just you know spend a day to really think about what I'm really writing about here, uh, is something that I have more ability to do 
at a magazine. Obviously, there's, there's great newspaper writers who, who, who dig deep into stuff too, but especially as a young writer, I, I felt I would have a little more space, a little more uh, opportunity to explore, to be creative at, at a magazine. So, and so I've been here, I've been at SI four years now, and uh, it's been great. And is really digging into a story, taking a little bit more time. Is that the thing that you really enjoy about working at Sports Illustrated? What other, what other aspects of the job at SI do you really enjoy? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the people are great. I mean, that's, that's obviously going to be the number one factor when you're deciding where to work is, is who you're going to be working right. with. And, and so, um, you know, the, the thing I love about people at Sports Illustrated is I think they take the, the art and the, and the craft of sports writing very seriously. You know, it's it's not just reporting on, on the news and it's not just about getting the scores in the paper. It's um, really, really, you know, <laughs> at, at its most uh, pretentious, you know, it, it's it's high minded and it's literary. So that that's kind of the. The, the part about it, people appreciate good writing, people appreciate good stories. And, you know, whether you're the baseball writer, the, the football editor, everyone kind of has that shared appreciation. And so that, I think, is what really creates the, the great workplace dynamic. Because it, it's interesting in journalism, you know, you don't end up working with your colleagues a ton because you kind of end up uh, on your specific beat, your specific topic, specific sport in this case. And, and so you kind of work in, in that world a little bit. But, um, you know, that, that shared interest kind of allows for uh, interesting discussions and, and inspiration, and, and you get to learn every day from, from these, these excellent writers. So that, that's definitely the best part of it. And I wanted to dig in a little bit about what you have wrote about and the sports media field as a whole, because it does seem like you write on a variety of different topics, but usually the intersection, as I said in the beginning, of sports media, the internet, and business mm-hmm. a little bit. You've wrote about the upcoming NBA schedule, the London baseball mm-hmm. broadcast, Bob Lee's retirement. What do you make of the sports media industry as a whole? Because for anyone who knows in the industry, whether it's me working at a newspaper, you working at SI, someone working at a sports media company, the media industry is changing. What do you make of it all for someone who's working in it right now? Well, yeah, that's, that's what makes it so interesting. So, right, so, you know, I spent more time covering the NFL before moving to this uh, topic about, about a year ago. And it, it's really a chance for me, like, like we were saying before, a, as a consumer to say, I don't really understand what's going on here. You know, why... For, for me, I looked at it a year ago as, you know, we, we have these, however many you want to say, five big tech companies, Apple, Google, Amazon, Netflix, Facebook. Uh, you, you can you can quibble on, on the margins there. but and, and they've changed pretty much everything about our daily lives, right? They've changed the way, you know, I'm talking to you right now. It's something that wouldn't be possible. They changed the way we, we shop. They changed the way we eat. They changed the type of shows we're watching increasingly. They changed uh, the, the, the way we date. They, they changed literally almost everything about your daily life, except... When you sit down on your same couch and turn on your same TV and change, turn to the same channel and, and, and watch the same sporting events the same way your father did. And so that was, you know, a year ago, what, what just didn't make sense to me. So um, that, that's what I got into. It. And, and, and as I've explored that over the last year, you find, you know, that that simple or, or straightforward or small question, you know, really touches on a thousand different things from, you know, the, the way we write about sports, this kind of journalism angle to the way we watch it, uh, to the way these leagues are, are, are thinking about staying competitive in this increasingly complicated media environment full of Snapchat and Instagram and all these other demands on, on especially young people's attention. Um, and, and so there's a million different, different ways to go there, but, but that's what's kind of so interesting to me. And, and getting to chart that change, you know, when you cover a sport, uh, there's a lot of benefits of covering a sport, but you, there's a season, you know, you know it's going to start, you know when it's going to end, you know one, one team is going to end up being the champion. You're going to have one, maybe two MVPs if, they, if something crazy happens. In, in, in this beat, you really don't know what it's going to look like a year from now, especially don't know what it's going to look like three years from now. And and so that that lack of, of a cycle has, has really been uh, fun, especially now as, as I go into year two of it. And is there one 
overarching theme or a thing you've taken away, something you've learned that you wouldn't have thought about or appreciated before really diving into this part of the sports media field? Oh, sure. I mean, there's, there's a tons of things. Like, like I said, you know, every day I kind of figure out, oh, like that, that makes sense. Like, I, I'm surprised I didn't know that. Or, um, you know, I think the, the biggest thing uh, with, without getting too far into the weeds, I guess, it, right. it's just how, how much uh, control, dominance, expertise, whatever, the, you know, the, 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 the major players, CBS, Fox, ESPN, NBC, um, you know, they, they do such a good job. There's so much expertise, so much quality uh, on the production side, on the talent side. Um, and, and so it will be, if they aren't able to, to, to keep up, it will be a real loss for a lot of fans because the experience right now, I think, you know, you, people should be uh, appreciating uh, how strong their sports viewing experience is now compared to a lot of, a lot of other realms that have been disrupted and, and have ultimately lost um, a, a lot of what made them great. And I don't know if you've touched on this in different articles you've looked at over the last year or two, but one thing I'm always interested in is sports media companies like Bleach Report or The Athletic has been really big of late, Barstool Sports. Those are specific companies that really do seem to be thriving in a time where the industry is changing. Newspapers are trying to adapt. Has SI changed its approach at all? I know everything's going digital now, so I don't know if they're focusing less on the magazine, more online, but working for a sports media company yourself, do you guys focus on new things in this new age to try to adapt? Yeah, absolutely. You have to. And, and that's also what's exciting about it is getting to see, you know, this this legacy brand that this, uh, you know, you can't tell the history of sports in America without Sports Illustrated. So getting getting to see a company like that, figure out, you know, what it means to be SI in, in, in 2019 and in 2025 uh, is really exciting. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, we have excellent social people who, who think about how the SI brand converts to social. We have uh, a, a growing video production unit and, and some great shows on SITV. We have uh, obviously the website has grown tremendously since it launched uh, almost two decades ago now. Um, and, and, and also balancing that with, with still creating uh, a high quality magazine and, and something that, you know, long time subscribers still are excited to get their hands on. And that's still, you know, the, the heart of, of our brand. That's where the, the best stories are told, laid out the best way, the best design, the best pictures, the most, uh, you know, that, that's what we're best at. So, uh, balancing that and, 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 and taking the expertise from that and, and the people who have gotten so good at that and seeing, you know, to take, taking the way their minds work and seeing what they can, how they can improve the experience online and, and how they can make um, sports journalism, sports storytelling, sports in general, uh, continue to, to have that, that kind of literary element in, in the modern age is, is, is a lot of, it's a, fun, it's a challenge, but it's, it's a fun challenge. And it really does seem like, from my perspective, a lot of the sports media companies that have been successful, obviously there's been a push for podcasts, videos seems really big now. Mm -hmm. Do you think those are two keys for companies to be successful at this point? Or what do you think is a key if you're a sports media company trying to make it maybe on the brink? Because there are plenty out there that are the, in the middle ground of trying to make it as a successful company. And it's interesting to figure out what is the key to really making it in this industry. Yeah, it's a really good question, and there's not going to be one answer for it. You know, right. I think what's what's so interesting is every company is trying to do something a little bit different. You touched on podcasts. You know, the Ringer has done a great job kind of building out of the podcast network. I think for me, if, if I was starting a sports media company, the, the probably the two things I would look for more, so no matter what media you're in, whether you're a TV channel, a uh, blog, a podcast, um, is, is personalization, you know, kind of knowing exactly what your reader, listener, audience wants. And then community, you know, bringing those people, making them feel like they're part of the production, 
introducing them to each other. To me, that's kind of the next step of what we're going to see, I think, um, especially at the local level of, of bringing these fans into the process such that, um, you know, reading the Charlotte Observer makes you a part of a community, you know, that, that you have a sense that these are the super fans or these are the fans that really care uh, about the truth, about knowing the players they're watching, uh, you know, as kind of a badge of honor, as, as a social distinction, as a part of their identity, really, it's what you ultimately want to get to is that, you know, they identify themselves as a, a fan, not only of the team, but, but of what, what you're producing as well. It's interesting to see certain personalities emerge, like a Stephen A. Smith. I know you wrote a column talking about Molly, who's the moderator of ESPN First Take. Mm-hmm. What do you make of a show like ESPN First Take or a guy like Skip Bayless in his show? Do you feel like that is good for the industry? Obviously, it's entertaining, and I can't get enough of Stephen A. What do you make of it all from someone who covers it? Yeah, I mean, good for the industry is, is a very complicated question. Um, I think I, I have no problem with the show as it is. I, I think, you know, for me, the, the question is really um, you, you kind of going back to what we talked a little bit, but this idea of like fan service, you know, how much you want to just produce something because you know it will get clicks, right? Versus something that, that you believe in or, 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 or can stand behind the, the artistic merits of uh, that, that also happens to be popular. I think you know, it, it, maybe it's sometimes it's hard to tell between those two different categories, but, but, but to me, that's what makes a big difference. And I, I do think talking, you know, to the folks at first take, it, it is, you know, it, it's a big production, you know, it's, they're, they're taking it seriously. Uh, and, and there is a ton of artistry behind being able to do that every day and being able to do that well. And, you know, obviously they have their missteps and, and they have their moments where I, in my opinion, it, it probably is too fan service or too uh, attention hungry or, or, or what have you. And, uh, you know, ha- having LeVar Ball on recently is probably uh, case, case in point for, for that. But, you know, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that, that we, sh- certain shows shouldn't exist if, if they're done with, with right. the right amount of integrity, which I think First Take is. And so to me, you know, th- there's certain shows that I like that the, the, the typical First Take viewer w- w- would not be a fan of. You know, a show like High Noon on in the afternoons on, on ESPN is, is a very different conversation show even though it looks like two people sitting there talking to each other so there's a wide array of things you know Stephen a is very good at what he does and and you know since i've started doing this a year ago you definitely get more respect for people like him who have respect of people in the building and and who care so deeply about their craft and, and and take so much pride in what they do yeah, my take on the whole thing, if you can back up an argument and you're a good arguer, I always respect that. So mm-hmm. although it can seem like theatrics and theatrical sometimes, and do they even believe what they're saying half the time? I don't know. But I do respect that they can make a good argument and back it up with facts. Yeah. I mean, theatrical, I, I, have, no, I have no problem with theatrical. You know, I, I think I, maybe maybe we should have maybe we should have more theatrical. I don't, I don't know. You know, I think to me, theatrical is just not boring. You know what I mean? Like That's true. It, I have no problem. I have no problem with it. As long as you're, I mean, the the parts where you have a problem is where it becomes disrespectful, right? Like right. where, where you're, you're going over the top and you're disrespecting somebody and, and just for the sake of being theatrical. So, you know, why shouldn't there be a scripted sports show? Like I, I, I wouldn't have a problem with going full theater, right? As, as long, as long as it's kind of respectful and, 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 and it moves the conversation forward in, in some sort of way. So I, I don't know, I guess that, that's where I would stand on that. I don't know if theatrical is the right word because it's obviously entertaining. I think people's problem with it is probably the disingenuousness of it. Mm-hmm. If someone goes on some massive rant, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like they really feel it, but it's entertaining. I think that's where some people, and I'm not even saying myself, but where some people could push back and think it feels disingenuous or not authentic. Yeah. And for that reason, I have a problem with it. 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'd have to sit those people down and tell them that most of TV is not, it, it, most of TV is disingenuous, right? I mean, these people right. are, are sitting at, at a, a desk that no one actually uses as a desk. They're looking at a camera. They're, they're reading lines off a teleprompter. You know, I, I think maybe it's more brazenly uh, disingenuous at times. Or, or, but, I mean, this is, this is TV. I mean, people like to say, you know, that they, they talk the same way on air as they do off air. And some people maybe get closer to that than others. But but at some point, you're, you're, you're making TV. So to tell me that, that it comes off as, as, as disingenuous feels like maybe you're, you're not uh, understanding the point of it. No, it's a good point. And I think everyone needs to recognize that it is TV and it's supposed to be mm-hmm. entertaining, which it is. I do want to wrap it up here with a few more questions for you and then I'll let you go. Yeah. To bring it back to the individual of certain people like myself, really anyone who's really trying to make it into the sports media industry. Mm-hmm. What has been a key for you and what advice would you have for people trying to make it? Um, that's a good question. I mean, key for, for I think the key to my success of whatever small amount I've had is just uh, just the persistence factor of just, uh, you know, making a connection and, and, and turning it into whatever you can and, and, and jumping from there to there. And, um, you know, accepting that when you're in your twenties or your, or your teens, that you're not going to be as good as you will be in your thirties, but that's not a reason not to write and not to get your name out there. And, um, you know, I've probably been more afraid of making mistakes than I should have been. You know, I, I think if, uh, if you're capable of, of, of jumping in fearlessly and, and, and knowing you're going to make mistakes, that will benefit you. Uh, in the long run. And, and in terms of advice, I mean, the, the biggest advice, and you know, I'm sure this is common, but just to have an expertise and angle something that the people come to you for, that, that you're part of the discussion as small as it is. You know, we just hired um, a great writer, Paul Lucas, who, who focuses on, on uniforms and, and design and aesthetics. Um, and, 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 you know, talking to him, that's something that people, you know, laughed at him back, back when he first started that. And, you know, no one's going to want to read that. That's so boring, whatever, whatever. Uh, and, and, and now he's a writer of Sports Illustrated. So, uh, whether it's, you know, the, the financial part of the game, the, we, we, we've got legal experts, you know, whether it's uh, the, the, the tactical part, the, the, I, I think for me, um, what I'd love to see SI hire is, you know, a, a psychological expert, because I think we, we struggle to kind of get into the depths of when, when you're watching a tennis match, the, the, the depths of what's going on in their head. So, you know, if, if you want to go uh, major in, in sports psychology, I think, I think you'd have huh. um, a, a lot of jobs at, at, at the end of it. So for me, you know, the, the, the persistency and, and accepting mistakes and then uh, trying to find what your niche is and just what you're excited about, because that, that's going to bleed in, into whatever you produce. That's interesting about the psychology of sports, because uh-huh. a lot of psychology majors I'm always very interested in at, so that's always interesting yeah. to hear. But do you have a goal for yourself going forward of where you want to get to? It seems like you're happy at Sports Illustrated, but is there a certain thing you want to cover or a certain thing you want to do that you haven't been able to do yet? Um. No, I, I don't think in terms of long-term goals, it's not really something I've, I've really wrote down or anything like that. Um, you know, for me, it's, it's just, like I said, just trying to understand more of the space, trying to talk to more people um, and, and, and trying to build up some level of credibility. You know, I, I, I care about what I'm writing about. You know, these things are important to me. You know, talking, you know, the NBA schedule, thinking about uh, something like that over three or four days is, is something that I, I take seriously. So, um, you know, I guess continuing to figure out maybe my, my biggest goal is figuring out what exactly, you know, this beat encompasses should, should comprise of, um, it, it, you know, when you're talking about sports media, that really just is another word for sports, right? Because every, everything you're, 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 unless you're at the game, it, it's sports media. So, you know, try, trying to whittle that down, like I say, in, into something that, that I can own and, and be responsible for and feel comfortable opining on is, is really what, what I'm working towards in, in, in year two of, of this experiment. 
Well, thanks so much for joining me, Jacob. Is there anything you want people to know about that I didn't ask about? People can follow you on Twitter, at Jacob Feldman 4. You can read your work online at sportsillustrate.com. Is there anything else you want people to know? No, that's it. You mentioned the uh, the Sunday Long Read podcast. I encourage people to check that out, sundaylongread.com. And, and otherwise, it's been fun chatting with you, and best of luck. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Jacob. I really appreciate it. Of course. Talk soon. Thanks so much to Jacob Feldman for joining the podcast. Graduated from Harvard, he's clearly a very intelligent guy, and it was great to hear his perspective on the sports media field because he writes about that stuff on a day-to-day basis. He was really a good guy to talk to about the field and his thoughts on how certain companies are making it and where he thinks the field is going, but I do want to transition to talk about the Red Sox again. As I said, I want to focus on baseball. Ideally, the rest of the podcast coming up here as we get into September, and I talked about it on the podcast last week. And I'm recording this on a Tuesday morning. And the Red Sox had a big win, huge win last night against the Rays. And they're now tied with the Rays in the loss column. They're two games back in the wild card from Oakland. And then the Indians are leading the way for the top wild card spot. But I talked about it in the podcast last week. And I really want to emphasize this point again in the podcast this week. Because I'm still hearing some of the same things. Now, not everyone's saying this. So this is not a narrative that everyone's talking about in Boston. It's just something I've been hearing on sports radio stations. And some people are suggesting this team should be sellers at the deadline. And the deadline is coming, I believe it's on July 31st. And and even if people are saying they shouldn't be sellers right now, they're saying that this week is going to determine whether they are going to be sellers, which I think is so ridiculous. And after the win last night, it really shows why you cannot give up on this team. Now, I don't know if anyone is giving up on this team, but there's been a variety of comments, whether it's by writers in the Globe, Pete Abraham, or a bunch of different guys, when we talk about trading certain players at the trade deadline. And to me, I just think it's so ridiculous when we look at the roster of this Red Sox team. Now, this Red Sox team is on pace for 88 wins, which isn't great. We know they're better than that. Last year, they had 108. They're not 108 good. No one is 108 good. Last year, they had a perfect season. However, they can be somewhere in between. And clearly last year was not a fluke. The talent was too good. It wasn't like the 2013 Red Sox that just somehow got it together. Everything went right. The guys like Johnny Gomes and Mike Napoli and certain guys step up. That team was not that talented, and that was a fluke of a year. Last year was not a fluke. It's really hard for teams to have two consistent seasons like that in baseball. 108 win seasons don't happen for a reason, because the game is so hard. But just because the Sox have been inconsistent up to this point in the season, and because they're not playing to expectations, does not mean that they can't get there. And when you look at teams of how to show whether inconsistent success in the regular season will show itself in the playoffs, and I talked about this in the podcast last week, a huge determiner of that is whether the team has won before or not. It's hard to say that you should sell on a team because they're inconsistent with basically the same amount of talent last year, basically the same players, Minus Kimbrell, and I've talked about that. But it's basically the same team minus Kimbrell. They're underperforming, but they won it all last year. So you're going to give up on the team and sell, trade guys at the deadline? Or if they don't perform well this week, but they had a big win last night. And I'm not saying this week is not important for this team. It's clearly important. You're playing the Rays, and they're going to play the Yankees. There aren't a ton of games left. So I get how these games are important. But to say these bold statements like they need to sweep or they need to go 10-4 and in their next 14 games, it's not true. <laughs> we get to a couple weeks left in the season, all right, then we talk. But again, they're tied with the Rays now in the loss column for the wild card. Oakland, 
is two games up for them in the loss column. Those are the two teams that are in front of them. Is anyone scared of either of those two teams? I don't think so. When you look at the talent, I'm not going to pretend like I know the Rays or the Indians or Oakland in and out. Because I'm not watching baseball. No one's watching baseball. But when you look at the Red Sox talent and you look at what they can do in the playoffs if they get there and they're so close to getting there, that to sell to me is so beyond absurd. And I know, and I talked about it on the last podcast, they're inconsistent teams that don't play up to expectations and they don't perform as well as we think they did. Just look at the Celtics. I said it last podcast and I'll say it again. The Celtics are the prime example of a team that had so much talent, had huge expectations, underperformed in the regular season, and it showed because they weren't a team in the playoffs. I just don't feel the same way about this team. Yes, the spark isn't there right now. However, it doesn't mean the spark can't come back. And we've seen glimpses of it. And baseball is a hard game to win consistently. And Rodriguez has been pretty solid. Another big start last night for the win. Price has been up and down, but Price's numbers have been great. We need better pitching from Sale. We need better pitching from Priscilla. But when I sum all this up, and I said it last week, and I'll say it again, I feel good about the team. Just get us to the wild card, and then see what they can do in the playoffs. It's the exact same roster, minus Kimbrell. And they didn't use Kimbrell in the playoffs. He was worse for them in the playoffs. I don't know Joe Kelly. Joe Kelly was great in the playoffs, but he didn't do anything for you in the regular season. So if they get a closer at the trade deadline, Avaldi, I know he was terrible in the ninth, but if Avaldi pitches well in the back of the pen, those are two problems that solves what you had last year, and it's the same team. Xander's playing unbelievable baseball. He's emerging as a leader for this team. Benintendi had a good night last night. Devers is unbelievable right now. Mookie and JD, they're going to be there. They're both hitting now 285. They're putting up decent numbers. They're going to hit better. So don't give up on this team. Don't make bold statements that this week is necessary for them to get to the playoffs or else they're out of it or they should sell the deadline, which to me is so ridiculous because when you look at the talent and when you look at teams that are inconsistent and you're concerned about those teams in the playoffs, those are teams that have not won. This team won last year, has basically the same team, and if they get it together, they beat out Oakland and Tampa, which why can't they do that? They're only a couple games back. And you see what happens in the wild card and see what happens in the playoffs. But absolutely buy in on this team. They showed it last year and they should show it again this year. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to check out my other episodes on the Wicked Local North of Boston website or on my social media accounts. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robbie McKittrick for latest podcast information. Thanks so much for listening.